0: Welcome back to the Malinokoi Magazine and Silver Shark Media Podcast. I'm Jason Evans of Silver Shark Media, and as always, we thank you for tuning in today and encourage you to subscribe and download to the podcast series. I'd like to welcome our next guest, Kevin O'Brien, the president of the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine Debris Project, or PMDP. So, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on.
0: And, and it. the first question, no worries, the first question is, is was my pronunciation correct?
1: Yes, mostly correct. Yes, it's uh the Papahānaumokuākea Marine Debris Project. It's a it's a it's a tough one.
0: What is the significance of of that work? Um
1: well, it's the it's the name of the of the national monument which encompasses all of the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And the name itself means um, it, it essentially describes the joining of Papahānaumoku which is the Earth Mother and Wakea which is Sky Father, and those two coming together Gave rise to the Hawaiian Islands and the Hawaiian people. And so that's the, the significance of the name.
0: And if, if you're looking on a map, you reference it's, it's the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. For, for people that may not be as familiar, um, the Hawaiian Island chain is not simply the Oahu, Maui, Big Island. It is a larger, larger chain. So how much space does the Northwest chain kind of encompass?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's huge. And that's kind of one of the things that we've run into, you know, doing a lot of outreach here in Hawaii is that, it, you know, many people are. They're aware of the northwestern Hawaiian islands, but don't really know too many details about them or, or really, you know, how, how close or far away they are from the main Hawaiian islands. And so it's huge. It's an enormous area, and it, it extends for about 1,300 miles to the northwest of Kauai and Ni'ihau. Um, and, the, and the national monument encompasses about 10 uninhabited islands and atolls, you know, that stretch throughout that 1,300 miles, but also a bunch of open ocean and and the monument itself is five hundred and eighty-two thousand square miles, I believe. It's it's
0: huge. It's massive.
1: It's and massive. so, yeah, it's just massive. And and the statistic that uh, that's really impressive is is, is that all uh, out of out of all of the United States, seventy percent of all the coral reefs in the U.S. are within Papahanaumokuakea. Which so is it's a staggering,
0: staggering, staggering, and, and, yeah, staggering. And so what. It also, kind of going to the basic, you know, question and answer: What is a national monument? How does that differ from, say, a national park?
1: Sure, it, it's a it's just a level of federal protection. So it's an area that's that's managed in this case specifically for research, conservation, and cultural activities. And it's and it's very much managed as a wildlife refuge. In fact, it has also within that same area uh, the Hawaiian Islands National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, and so there's 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 multiple levels of protection for the islands and the the habitats and the wildlife. But in this case, the National Monument is a, also a UNESCO World Heritage Site, being that this area has, you know, obviously very strong connections to many Hawaiian cultural narratives, you know, in terms of cosmology and origin stories and all this sort of thing. And so it's it's sort of a blending of those of those things that they manage for wildlife, habitat, culture, and then also um there's some World War II history, sure. you know, particularly with uh, Midway Atoll, which is a part of this area, too. It's not a place that you can just, you know, hop on a boat and head up there as a, right. you know, on a recreational trip or anything. It's very highly regulated and all activities up there have to be permitted. So it's kind of one of our struggles, really, is how how can we help people get to know this place without without um, your everyday person being able to actually go there?
0: Yeah, and, and I have to imagine that is that is a line that you have to walk on. How do you get people to care about what they may not know about? You know, when, when you reference wildlife and the protections up there, because of these protections, can you talk about sort of what the wildlife situation is up there? I mean, this is these are scenes that you would see, you know, an easy reference would be something on a planet Earth um, where you have, you know, no real human development in this entire chain that's protected.
1: Yeah, it's it's probably the most amazing place on earth and I think I uh, uh, sort of easy to relate the experience of going there to to stepping back in time because mm-hmm. you have a place where, you know, most of these islands have no permanent human presence on them, yep. Midway being the exception there. Sure. But the wildlife, you know, may have never seen a human being before. And right. so you land on one of these islands or or swim out on one of these reefs and you know the seabirds will land on your head, monk seals will swim right up to you and, and check you out. And you can, you know, stand in ankle deep water right off the beach and have fish swimming around your ankles, you know, which wow. you never see here in the main Hawaiian Islands. And so it's just it's just incredible. And so that's kind of one of the things we like to to show is that here's this place. You know that that I hope more and more people will begin to realize is part of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It, it's worthy of of more attention and protection and, and and that sort of thing. So, you know, island species in particular are always kind of more sensitive. And so here we have these really sensitive island ecosystems that are really prone to getting hit by invasive species and right. that sort of thing. And obviously, all these talks about uh, climate change, how it's impacting the reefs and and all the other the other wildlife. But a place like that is really vulnerable. And so that's why we, you know, we do what we do is, is really to mitigate the threat to wildlife.
0: Yeah. And that was kind of leading to my next point was, you know, it is so protected. It is so isolated, yet there is a lot of human impact on the the ecosystem there. So tell me about how such an isolated place can be so impacted by human Industry and activity.
1: Yeah, that's it's 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 pretty shocking. So I was actually at the gas station the other day, and we were getting rid of the last load of marine debris from our our last cleanup trip that we just returned from. And I was filling up the PMDP truck, you know, and in the back we had a load of tires that were, you know, part of what we picked up off the the shorelines up there. And it just occurred to me, looking at this truckload of tires, that every single one of those was picked up between 700 and 1300 miles from the nearest road right. you know which is crazy if you think about it so here's this place it's supposed to be a sanctuary for wildlife uh there are no human inhabitants to throw their own garbage in the in the waters and on the beaches there and yet it has such an an unproportional inordinate you know amount of impact from that from that problem so it's kind of the way I think about it is really just an, as an indicator of the scope and scale of the larger problem of plastics in the ocean mm-hmm. in that here's a place that's arguably the most remote Island chain on earth, no human inhabitants. And yet here's all this stuff. And yeah. so there, if there was ever a place that shouldn't have this stuff, it's Papa mokuakea Akea, but here we are. So.
0: What kind of things are you finding on these islands? Pretty much anything you can imagine that's made of
1: plastic and that Floats. Yeah. We find it, and you know, it's actually kind of fun. Walk, you know, sobering, but in the same sense, fun. Walking down the shorelines and just because you know, seeing what you find because it's kind of like a scavenger hunt. Right. You know, we found motorcycle helmets and car bumpers and floating docks and bowling balls and golf clubs and toys and you know, fully intact fluorescent light bulbs and um, just really just about anything it doesn't seem to discriminate if it floats and it's made of plastic you know we, we find it um, and it's interesting to see you know what we find the most of because it's sort I guess it's sort of telling as to really what's making up most of the floating debris in the ocean um, and so we've been we've been collecting some data on this stuff over the years with the goal of being able to Quantify how much is accumulating on the shorelines, and so and what that was you, part of our.
0: What are you finding part of our stuff?
1: Well, it's a lot of. Um, first of all, you know anything big that's made of plastic with wind and wave action and UV and all that, they break down into smaller pieces. So our our most frequently found item is plastic fragments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which can be a fragment of a buoy or a fragment of a laundry basket or a bottle. Or that sort of thing. But in terms of just fully intact items, it's a lot of stuff from the fishing industry. We find a lot of hard plastic and foam fishing floats. Um, we find a lot of bottles, drinking bottles, sure. uh, you know, shampoo bottles, that sort of thing, jugs, uh, stuff with caps that allow it to float. Right. There's a lot of stuff like um, eel cones. There's a hagfish fishing industry that uses these little black plastic fish fish trap cones as part of their gear. And for whatever reason, those tend to disassociate with the rest of the gear. And we find them in huge numbers on the beach. And they're particularly dangerous because the juvenile monk seals will get their snouts stuck sure. in these yeah. eel cones and that sort of thing. What we find probably the most of by weight is the the derelict fishing nets, which right. is the real problem. Sure. So,
0: and it yeah. makes you, you talk about the things that float. It makes you think about how many things have gone in the water, fallen off barges that don't float, that are just heading straight down and, and affecting the ecosystems that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So l- let's talk about, you guys just had a, a really big cleanup, um, kind of ending around Earth Day. Tell me about the most recent expedition you did, and and I've heard you say we pick up lots of, lots of. I want people to hear the um, mathematics on what lots of means, because the numbers that you guys posted are staggering.
1: Yeah, it's true. So we came home uh, on just before Earth Day, I guess it was, uh, after spending 23 days at sea. Uh, we chartered a 180 foot supply vessel, which is a perfect platform for the job. A couple <laughs> of cranes, couple of cranes on board and a big back deck that's just like a big floating pickup truck to create big mountains and piles of this stuff. So we were gone for 23 days or so. And then of that, obviously, you're 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 getting there for part the time, part of the time. It's so far away, you know, to get to our first work location, for instance, that was, uh, Kamole Island, Laysan Island, uh, it took us just four days of just motoring on the ship to get there. So yeah. out of those whole, you know, out of the whole project, we, we spent 13 of those days actually cleaning up and, and, and that yielded 94,400 pounds of, of debris, you know, and so that's 47 tons is the number. And, we always like to kind of equate that to something people can visualize. Yeah. And unfortunately it's been so busy since we returned. I haven't been able to just simply Google it and see how many humpback whales or school buses that equals, but it's (laughs) maybe, maybe the listeners can, can Google it for themselves. What, 47 tons is equivalent to, but it filled up a good portion of the back deck of the
0: ship. And and you guys on, on your website, you have imagery of um, what just some of that looks like. I mean, there's photos that that really put into scale where you have, you know, 10 of your volunteers laying on sort of a, a cargo full of trash bags and, and debris that's collected that really kind of puts those visuals into place. Um, it, it's a massive amount, and it makes me wonder how much more is still out there that you just were unable to, to access? I mean, I have to imagine it's just, it, it, it's a lot of, it, 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 collects a lot over time, which is, you know, what you're showing and, and what you're trying to help, help solve.
1: Right. It does collect a lot. And so we obviously didn't get everything on this particular trip. And um, I think it would require several, you know, two to three of these larger scale projects annually to keep up with the influx of debris, which is part of our strategic plan as a nonprofit to be able to ramp up these efforts to that point where we actually are keeping up with the influx of accumulation. But, you know, even, even if just with a project like this where we're not able to get everything um, I felt like this time we had a really big impact, you know, what we focus on primarily when we get to an Island, we might only have, You know three days at each island location to conduct the cleanups but what we focus on first is simply pulling off all of the entanglement hazards we can see from the entire island which is which is really the main thing that protects the hawaiian monk seals and the turtles from getting tangled up and you know choking and, and dying and that sort of thing and so prioritizing that um i think is is the most important thing that we do and then and then if we have more time then we'll focus on plastics. Because, you know, you have 22 species of seabirds, yep. I believe, up there, and many of them sit on their nests, you know, on the beach or in the vicinity of the beach and pick away at whatever's sitting on the beach around them, yep. which most of the time is lots and lots of plastic. And so that does have an impact, too. Uh, but with, you know, obviously limited time and resources, focusing on the entanglements is, is really the, the name of the game. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. well, it is it is such a large puzzle to to try to solve all the pieces. So you do kind of have to go, you know <laughs> compartmentalize a little bit and 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 work on the areas that you have the most uh, manpower behind uh, on each trip. And so it, it, you know, big yeah. picture with with these conversations and and you know I produce a show called Awesome Planet that focuses on a lot of conservation efforts. And when you get into the big picture outlook on something like this, in your opinion, how do we get to the mode where, next year you know maybe this year it's 47 tons and next year it's 40 and in five years it's four and in 15 years it's less than one ton how do you envision that sort of scale happening um, on a, on a big picture outlook
1: yeah and that's kind of the the big question the burning question is you know how do we how do we solve the problem you know it's always related to the the analogy of oh your bathtubs overflowing do you just try and mop it up off the floor while it's pouring out of the over the top of the tub or do you just turn the tap off you know and so obviously beach cleanups are a a mitigation tactic that don't solve the real problem and so for us you know the mitigation tactic here is to keep up with the accumulation simply so that this incredible protected area you know gives its best shot to the wildlife for survival right and so for us it's more about the place than the issue of marine debris, you know, this is the one issue that we can really have an impact today yep. to, to mitigate some of these threats to wildlife, which, which are significant. Yep. I mean, the entanglement issues they suffer up there are, are significant. So, but really, you know, it, ultimately to solve it. And, and I like your, your numbers. That's really optimistic.
0: Very optimistic. <laughs> Very optimistic. hypothetical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, there's so many, Excellent organizations out there and governments working to stem the tide of plastic and, and to, to help reduce plastic production worldwide. Um, the sobering reality is that plastic production worldwide is estimated to go up by 40% in the next 10 years. Sure. As you have more and more, um, the, you know, growing middle class and some developing nations and that sort of thing, the demand for plastic is, is just going up. And so, unfortunately, that part of it looks fairly bleak. However, I, I know we can solve it. Yeah. There's so many good people working on the issue. And the way we like to think about contributing to that, because, you know, conducting these cleanups is a really massive undertaking, tons of logistics uh, and all that sort of thing. And, and we're kept extremely busy just doing that. And so we haven't really focused too much of our efforts on joining that, you know, the fight to, um, to turn off the tap, yeah. if you will, yep. other than simply to show through our Photos and videos show the world, look, here is this incredible place and yet here's the problem that it suffers from, Mm -hmm. you know, and and hopefully those images and that imagery and the, the, you know, the, the way people identify, I think with wildlife and with animals is, is different than if you just show a beach with people on it. Yeah. That's the way that, that we hope we are contributing to, to, to solving the problem.
0: Well, I think you're doing a, a very effective job of it. I think anyone who sees the photos and and kind of sees the scope of things, um, it certainly is is eye-opening. How how did the marine debris project originate? How did it start? Yeah, well, it's been it's been
1: actually a project run by the federal government um, since the late '90s, mm-hmm. uh, run by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and and I worked for NOAA for about 12 years, and part of my job was um, helping coordinate and lead the Marine Debris Removal Missions in Papahanaumokuakea And NOAA did a tremendous job of, of making that work happen despite a lot of competing priorities for, for time on the ship and for staff and with limited funding and that sort of thing. And so what became evident to me was that despite um, NOAA's very best intentions, that we needed another mechanism to be able to make these cleanups happen yeah. and to be able to put in the energy and the time and the resources to make them happen more frequently, yeah. several times a year, to really keep up with the problem. So I jumped ship from NOAA in 2019 and created PMDP. And then it's been a really wonderful transition with tons of support from NOAA and from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the state of Hawaii. And so this most recent cleanup was was organized by us, but in many ways funded and and all the resources essentially for these very expensive operations provided by those by those agencies as well, so we've we've created a really nice partnership where we can pool resources, um, and and PMDP will take the lead on 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 being the driving force for making them happen annually.
0: So, which is great. Uh, I, I think you know you you have a very challenging you know logistic and physical goal every time you guys go out to have partnerships at that level um, that also appreciate the importance of it. I think is massive Um, rather than just trying to go at this alone, obviously, which would be probably a more of a logistical nightmare uh, than it is already. So let's talk about logistics. Um, You know, when you, you talk about going out a couple times a year, you did reference, it takes you a couple days just to get to your first site. When you're planning these expeditions, how much goes into that in terms of uh, you're looking at goals, transportation, the vessel, uh, manpower, what is the logistic process like behind planning each of these expeditions and how far in advance do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a full-time job. So to give you an example, we actually started our first talks about this most recent project uh, with the project partners, you know, having monthly or bi-weekly planning calls. We started those talks uh, about 14 months ago. Wow. And so, you know, especially when you're, when you're talking about doing things in partnership with different organizations, it gets... Uh, more complicated in some regards. You have personnel to make sure everyone has standard training and certifications and, you know, all, all those sorts of things you need to just get the people on the boat. And then you have a vessel to charter, which is a big contract, um, situation, uh, competitive contract. And, uh, and, and, and then you have all kinds of gear boats to get ready, boats to inspect, you know, uh, all your boat drivers to get checked out and, and recertified and, and, and then obviously funding everything. And so pulling together the funding from grants, from donors, from contributions from the different agencies, it's, it's a lot of coordination and it's really fun, you know, to be honest with you, it's, yeah. a, it's a great job. And, um, I'm always so, um, I don't know, just thrilled to see how much everyone cares about this issue. But it's it's a beast. Putting together one of these things is a beast, and so we got back, you know, around Earth Day, and then my calendar is just filled up this week with uh, with meetings and calls about the next one, which is going to go out in August, and so it doesn't uh, it doesn't stop. You got to put these things together way
0: ahead of time. So one thing I I've learned in you know covering stories like this for for Awesome Planet is I I typically get responses from kind of two different uh, sections of people. The first section will be how can I get involved? How can I physically go help do this? How can I lend support to this project, to this organization? So if there's someone out there who's listening, who says, okay, you know, these pictures made an impact on me. This cause made an impact on me. I want to go try to help. I bring certain toolkit that can be of use. If I wanted to go in you know, fall of 2021 or the next spring of 2022, how could someone like that reach out to get involved?
1: Sure. Well, they can definitely visit our website, uh, www.pmdp.hawaii.org, and um, we'll be. Uh, you, you know, you can sign up for our newsletter on the website, and then um, reaching out, reaching out to me, you can you can email info at pmdp.hawaii.org. I think uh, one of the things that um, that's important to keep in mind is that you know, there's only 12 berths on the ship, only 12 mm-hmm. bunks to fill. Mm-hmm. And so while we would be overjoyed if we could take everyone who's interested in volunteering out on one of these cleanups, the sad reality is that we can't. Right. We, we can take a, a couple of you, yeah.
0: you
1: know? <laughs> um, but obviously there's a lot of qualifications involved. And so um, it's, it's tough. It's not like, a, you know, a, a beach cleanup with yep. 808 cleanups or sustainable coastlines here where you know, anyone and everyone can come join and take part. Um, we wish it was that way, but it's not. And so if, if people want to help the help the cause, really the best way that you can do that is getting passionate about Mokuakea, you know, learning as much as you can about it, telling your friends, like, look at this incredible place. Um, and then obviously, uh, you know, obviously there's the, uh, the whole donation or contribution part of what we do that we're hoping to be able to build. A grassroots community in Hawaii of people that care about this place, yeah. that want to contribute in that way, um, and so, but you know, just staying involved and, and and learning about what you can about this place, and and staying tapped into to our newsletter. Uh, if there are volunteer opportunities in the future, absolutely, we encourage everyone to chase their passion and and try to try to get involved in that way.
0: You kind of answered the second part of the question, which was the, the other group that I always get is. I can't do these things. I get seasick. I can't stay out on the water for three weeks, two weeks. How can I support the organization? And I think you kind of touched on that with educating yourself and telling others about this place and also um, you know, monetary donations. And I'm sure that people can always reach out and ask and and get some guidance on how they can best kind of spread your message as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or if you have a, or if you have a a, a relevant skill, you know, for instance, I just got an email um, from, from a guy on the mainland who has, you know, experience in startups and fundraising and he said, Hey, do you need any help fundraising? And so, you know, I'm going to set up a call with him and, and see if he can, you know, assist us. And so if, if anyone out there listening has, relevant skills that might assist our organization in growing and being better and, and that sort of thing. We, we totally welcome all that sort of help as well. Right now, we have a $20,000 donation match going on on our website. So if anyone's interested in contributing monetarily, it's a great time right now to do that because every every dollar that you send becomes two.
0: Awesome. Perfect. Well, if if folks want you gave the website, but let's give it one more time and also any social media if people want to learn more about this organization, also see some of these images from your most recent expedition which I highly highly recommend. Um so website, Instagram, lay it all out there.
1: All right. So our website is pmdphawaii.org and that's the acronym for Papahanaumokuakea Marine Debris Project. Uh pmdphawaii.org. And then you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and we're just sort of getting our Twitter sort of in a better place, but our handle for the social media is at PMDP Hawaii. Awesome. So those are the best ways to, we have a rock star social media team that uh, really put together some really cool content while we were out on this uh, last mission. So it's kind of fun to sift through and look at the the photos and the stories from, from our, from our mission. And and if you do want to relive our last project, even though it's over, We have a tab on our website called Follow the Journey, and you can go back through. We've created an interactive story map, which essentially relates um, daily updates from the field, photos and content to specific locations on a satellite map so you can really see where we were and get a sense for this place. So that's a really neat way to kind of explore what we've been doing as well
0: i i actually did that on your site and i think it's a really cool way to see the scope of uh the area uh and what you covered so um definitely agree to recommend folks reach out and and learn more uh, as they can either on on the website itself or on social media so kevin thank you so much for taking the time I, i really appreciate everything you do i think you're championing a really good cause and i know it's not easy um and you know the imagery you brought back. Uh, it shows why there's such passion behind it. So once again, I, I say thank you for the work that you and your team have done, and for taking the time to to chat and and inform our guests a little bit more about the organization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for helping us get the word out there. Stay tuned for our um, our upcoming August and September project in partnership with NOAA, and that's going to be a month long project where we're this time we're going to focus on cutting the derelict fishing nets off of the reef. So we'll be doing a lot of free diving and pulling nets pulling out of the water this time, which is the whole other component to what we do. So stay tuned.